In Genesis 45, we're going to read about the joy of reconciliation and reunion. James just talked about it, you know, uh, getting together with folks that have worked with group uh, work camps for over the years. There's a real joy in reunion and reconciliation. But I'm going to kind of throw a curveball at you today because when we're talking about the way God forgives and reconciles uh, to us is a little different than the way we forgive and sometimes, hopefully most of the time, try to reconcile with others. But the reality is, uh, if you're a believer in Christ, you can and should forgive others of their offenses against you, but you may not be able to reconcile. And I think there's a lot of false guilt in a lot of good Christians because they don't understand that difference, and we'll talk about that today as we look at the joy of reconciliation in Joseph's life in the first part, first 15 verses of Genesis 45. But before we look at that, let's pray for our teachability, our troops, peace officers, firefighters, and uh, Sydney with an eye, if you would, lead us in prayer in that direction, please. Yeah, with... Um, Memorial Day just a few weeks ago, and then uh, the 75th anniversary of D-Day, you do uh, realize that freedom isn't free. That's certainly true theologically, right? Uh, and it's also true, uh, and we don't always appreciate it anymore, do we? Uh, tonight, men, remember at 638, or before, if you want to be there early, Red Bird Apparel downtown in Duncan, not Marlowe, uh, we're going to have our monthly or semi-monthly men's fellowship. Uh, Red Dirt Apparel, if you haven't been in there, is really a neat uh, local business that Don, that, that Don or Ron or whatever your name is uh, uh, owns and operates. And now Ron is a very humble guy. Uh, he didn't really like to talk about himself, unless you ask him a couple times, then he's glad to. But um, he didn't want to talk about his distinguished career as an accountant or even as a small business owner. But today I want to share some things you don't know. He doesn't like to talk about this because it sounds like he's bragging, but what he really wanted to be was a high school English teacher. And there were a lot of reasons for that. But I'm not going to waste your valuable time going over all the many reasons, but I'd like to go over four of them. The first three kind of hang together. I think Jack, as a high school student, can certainly relate to this. And then the, the real one's the last one. So these are some key reasons Ron Miller almost became a high school English teacher. He believed that someone had to be totally, brutally honest with high school students and tell them three really tough truths. Number one, Jean Shallot didn't really deserve the 2009 Nobel Peace Prize they gave her. She's a nice person, but she didn't really deserve it. Pro wrestling is actually real, and the NASA moon landings were all actually fake. But the real, the real thing, and this hits me in the heart every time I think about it, Ron sincerely wanted to help high school students learn how to spell more better and to write more gooder. And that's, that's reason, that's reason enough to want to become a high school English teacher. But the Lord led him in a different direction. We're going to look at the joy of reconciliation and reunion, which ultimately can be enjoyed only by those who are forgiving and, uh, who are gracious. And yet sometimes it's impossible to reconcile. I would say keep the bridge open on your side and see what happens. And we're going to stress that today. Uh, the overall theme of the Joseph story as we've been investing several months in this 
is the fact that God works through faithful believers in redeeming ways as we persevere and we show forgiveness toward other people, as we live our lives really daring to believe that God's in control. He's got his reasons for the good, bad, and the ugly, and he's working it all together in a way that pleases and glorifies him, and we need to uh, recognize that so we can live our lives downstream instead of resisting that like we're paddling upstream. Now, the context of this story is critical, Phyllis, because I'm going to drop you right into the middle of one of the most amazing things that ever happened in human history, but you got to appreciate what happened 22 years before and over a long period of time where it didn't really look to the human eyeball like God was doing very much. Sometimes it doesn't look like God's doing much. That's when you're flying on instruments, you know, when you're on a nice clear day. I'm not a pilot, didn't have the intelligence, the courage, nor the gumption to become a pilot, but I've known some, including my dad. And on a clear day, you know, with the instruments working and stuff, anybody can fly a plane. It's taking off and landing. That's the hard part. But uh, there are days, like night, fly at night. I mean, it kind of weirds you out when you uh, are flying over the ocean in the middle of the night and they tell you somebody's been smoking in the bathroom. That ever happened in your life, Dustin? Uh, yeah, it happened to us on the way back. But, yeah, it, flying on instruments is where a pilot, male or female, can just look at the instrument panel, not even look outside the window, like pitch dark or in the middle of a thunderstorm or something, which they hopefully go around. Flying on instruments is a good analogy to what you've got to do when it's hard to see what God's doing. I mean, God's a lot smarter than we are, and one of the things I say a lot, Murray, is you're, you're a brilliant kid, young man. I mean, kid, not like a female goat, but I mean like a baby goat, but as a as a young person compared to me. Of course, everybody's young compared to me. But, um, yeah, uh, flying on instruments is kind of like uh, what God wants us to do all the time when we can't quite see what he's doing. And you're never going to have enough information to legitimately second-guess God, but it's easy to do that because the 18 things you can see or you think you understand just don't line up at all when you hear about some horrible child molester doing something to some little girl or something or some horrible terrorist event where all these innocent people get killed, how does that fit into the mosaic of God's purpose? What's like some of those really rough black spots in that mosaic that from a distance is clearly a masterpiece, but when you look up close at the individual pieces, some of them are pretty ugly. I think that's a, a helpful analogy. So I think the overall story of, of the Joseph saga is to encourage us that God can work through us persevering and forgiving as long as we trust in his sovereignty and his, his providence, right? And the text today really emphasizes that. But here's the context. 22 years before chapter 45, where we have the reunion, Joseph goes from favorite son to foreign slave. The brothers, uh, his older brothers, 10 of them, don't like him. In fact, they won't even speak to him civilly. He comes to check on them because dad sent him. What do they do? Throw him in a pit with the intention of deciding how they're going to kill him. But then some foreign slave traders come by in a caravan, and Judah, that's important to remember, Amber, it's Judah, says, we're not going to make anything just killing him. Let's sell him to these slave traders. They'll work him to death in Egypt. His dreams aren't going to come true about us bowing down to him. We can take that multicolored letter jacket he had and put some animal blood on it, and Dad will never be the wiser. And they couldn't care less about the effect it had on Joseph or their father as they're coming up with this plot 22 years before. So we see him moving from favorite son to foreign slave. 
90% chance he's going to be working in a salt mine in Egypt and dying within a couple of months probably. Chapter 38, we see Joseph's moral character contrasted with Judah. His character, he's the guy that said, let's make some money off of this deal and let, let, let the Egyptians work him to death. Chapter 39, we find out that sure enough, Joseph ends up on the chopping block, on the slave auction block, but rather than getting sold to somebody with a salt mining interest, he ends up with an inside job, no heavy lifting. He becomes an indoor household servant for a big shot in the Egyptian government, and he's such a faithful guy with some so much great character that he quickly works himself up to his, this guy's, this big shot's administrative assistant over his entire household. However, problems come up even there. What happens? What does Potiphar's wife say about Joseph? She falsely charges him of attempted sexual assault, so he ends up in prison. So from slave to household supervisor to accused sex criminal, but even in the prison, he elevates himself. He, his character is such that he becomes the head trustee under the people running the prison. So he ends up becoming the prison soup, which, uh, Jack, that's my... Uh, that's my uh, abbreviation for supervisor, okay? So he's the prison supervisor. New friends with big dreams. Um, once upon a time, while he's in prison, how two other big shots in the government that are close to Pharaoh end up on his bad side. He throws them to prison. His butler, his baker, Pharaoh's butler and baker, they have dreams they are convinced are important. Joseph interprets them. They become, they are fulfilled literally. The uh, the butler is reassigned to his original post. The baker is executed. And Joseph says, hey, uh, to the butler, hey, when you go back to work for the Pharaoh, put in a good word for me here. Tell him I'm falsely accused. But, of course, the guy forgets, right? So new friends with big dreams with the same old faithful Joseph. Two years later, after he interprets these guys' dreams, when the Pharaoh has two, a set of two dreams, that he's convinced need to be interpreted, that are going to be significant, suddenly the butler says, hey, I knew a guy in prison who interpreted our dreams. I bet he could fix you up. And so they shave his beard, clean him up, take Joseph from prison into the very presence of Pharaoh, the most powerful nation state in the world at that point, almost certainly. And Pharaoh relates his dreams. Joseph interprets the dreams. What were the dreams saying? For the next seven years, we're going to have surplus crops. After that, we're going to have seven years of no crops. We better get with a program to save the, preserve the crops for the seven bad years. And in the interaction with the Pharaoh and, and other people in the administration, they're so impressed by Joseph's clear character. And I think God is clearly giving him favor in these people's sights. They say, we want you to run the program of storing the grain during the good years so we can ride out, and the whole area can ride out the bad years. So we see from prisoner to prime minister of Egypt. Now, if the story stopped there, and Moses, who's writing this, pointed out some theological principle, you know, trust in God's providence, because even when you're falsely accused and bad things are happening to you and people hate you, God can still use you, and if it's his will, he'll elevate you in his time. That's that's all you need, right? To have a great movie, to have a great story. We're not done yet. It gets better. Uh during the second year, we have seven years of good crops and we're saving 20% of it. And now we're in the second year of the famine. Joseph's family, you know, the 10 brothers that sold him into slavery years before this, they run out of food. 
The ten brothers come into town. They stick out like a sore thumb in Egyptian culture. Joseph ends up interacting with them, but he doesn't look like he did. He's dressed up like an Egyptian. He looks totally different. They don't recognize him, plus they know he's dead, right? Sometimes the stuff we know isn't true, so just watch that. And he begins to test their character. I'm convinced Joseph had already forgiven them at a personal level. I don't think he's living his life with bitterness, hatred, uh, looking for a chance to get back at his brothers at a personal level. But the reason he puts them through several character tests is when he knew them 22 years before he starts interacting with them, they hated him so much they wouldn't even talk to him. They fully intended to kill him, and they assumed he'd be worked to death by the Egyptians. Plus, they couldn't care less how all that would affect their dad. So Joseph can't even be sure after 22 years of no contact whether they haven't whacked their dad to get their inheritance or treated him badly or something, much less his younger brother Benjamin. So he leads them through a series of character tests involving several trips back and forth, and we talked about that. And so here we end up with the climax of this first phase of the Joseph story in chapter 45, where we see the joy of reconciliation and uh, you got to remember, as important as this story is, in the big picture, the real reason Joseph is so important isn't just because he was such a high-character guy and God used him to save Egypt and most of the region during the famine. It, the reason it's so important is because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob received foundational promises about God was going to do about your salvation and Joseph is one of the sons of Jacob. So we're seeing God working in those people's lives thousands of years before this actually happens because God's timeline is different than ours. How did people in the Old Testament get saved? By obeying the Old Testament law? By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, but through the law comes the knowledge of sin, right? Saved by grace, through faith, in the promised Savior. And you'll notice when you look at the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the Jews call the Tanakh, the Law of the Prophets and the Writings, and it gives a specific set of prophecies about who the Savior is going to be. And when you look at the who part of that equation, he's going to be a human being, not an alien or an angel. He's going to be a male, not a female. He's going to be a Semite. He's going to be Jewish through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we're looking at that phase. And also he's going to be uh, of the tribe of Judah. And you might say, well, why would God use Judah? Reuben's the oldest. Why not use him? Why not use the tribe of Joseph? There's no tribe of Joseph. He's such a great guy in the program. God gives him two tribes. How did Joseph get two tribes? His sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, have their own tribe. So he's doubly represented. That gives you 13, yeah, but Levi's kind of in a different category. He's in charge of the preachers. You know, the preachers are different than everybody else. We're not really real people. Uh, right? You know that. But it's interesting. Judah rises to the occasion. And last week we see he's the guy that when Jake, Joseph, to test their character, sends them back home the second time with food and their money in their sacks, he has his special silver cup put in Benjamin's saddlebag. And as they just get out of town, Joseph sends his guys to check on it. and says, one of you guys stole Joseph's cup, or not Joseph's, but uh, the prime minister's cup. They said, no, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't do that. Of course not. Check it out. And they check everybody's saddlebags from oldest to youngest. They get to Benjamin, they find the cup. So they said, hey, just you know, put us all in slavery. He said, no, we're only going to take him, and he'll be a slave uh, for my man. And what does Judah say? Judah says, look. That We can't do that. 
I promised my dad, you know, uh, our other brother didn't come home once and we just got killed him. This will kill my dad. And I told my father, Jacob, I will not come home without Benjamin. So if you got to keep one of us, let it be me. Let me pay Benjamin's, you know, guilt, uh, his, his, his debt. And that's where we left it last time. And that's so important to appreciate as we read these next 15 verses. And let me give you some uh, input on exactly where we left it last time from soniclight.com. Soniclight.com sounds like some kind of new age website, Wendy, but it's not, okay? It's an evangelical Christian website, and it's the expository notes. This is great stuff. It's all free, 24-7. You can get it. Soniclight.com. Tom Constable says this. Talk. Bible exposition for uh, 40 years at Dallas Seminary. The brothers had changed. Their character is totally different than it was 22 years before. They now love their father. Rather than hating their father for favoring Joseph like they did 22 years ago, or Benjamin, the way they they probably perceive he does now, the brothers are now working for his Jacob's welfare, taking these dangerous trips to Egypt every time. The supreme proof of Judah's repentance And the moral high point of his career was his willingness to trade places last week with Benjamin. Benjamin was set up, but it looked like he's guilty of stealing the cup. And Judah said, I'll do that. I will be the slave. You let him go back home. I'm not going to do this to my dad. It shows his fidelity for his brother and his father and to God, actually. Um, He says, his willingness to trade places with Benjamin and remain in Egypt as a slave, quote, let your servant, let me, Judah, remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord. A spiritual metamorphosis, I can't spell it, but boy, it's fun to say. A spiritual metamorphosis for the better has certainly taken place in Judah, and I'd say in all these guys. He who once callously engineered the selling of Joseph, he's the one who said, let's sell him the slave traders and let them kill him. So we can make some money out of this deal instead of just killing him with our bare hands. He who callously engineered the selling of Joseph to strangers out of envy and anger is now willing to become Joseph's slave. He didn't know it's Joseph. So that the rest of his brothers, and especially Benjamin, whom Jacob loved more than Judah, or act like he did, could be freed and allowed to return to Canaan to rejoin their father. Jacob, and we'll see this in chapter 49 of Genesis, will crown Judah with kingship. That's a prophecy where he kind of talks about the directions of the sons and their tribes. And he emphasizes it's going to be the tribe of Judah through which the kings will come. David, right? And ultimately Jesus. Jacob will crown Judah with kingship when he speaks this oracle statement, this prophecy in Genesis 49, because he demonstrates that he has become fit to rule, that is Judah, according to God's ideal of kingship, that the king serves the people, not vice versa. Judah is transformed from one who sells his brother as a slave to one who is willing to be the slave for his brother. With that offer, he exemplifies Israel's ideal kingship and ideal his ideal king. His ideal king is Jesus Christ, who bore our sins in his body on the cross. Judah's faithful adherence to Benjamin, now in his distress, was recompensed long after by the constant adherence of the tribe of Benjamin to the tribe of Judah. I'd never thought about that before, but you know, you've got the united tribes of Israel under Saul, David, Solomon. What happens when Solomon dies? They split, 
You got Israel with ten tribes. You got Judah with two tribes. What are the two tribes in the nation of Judah? Judah and Benjamin. Isn't that interesting? Constable points out that Judah's faithful adherence to Benjamin was recompensed long after, after the breakup of the United Tribes of Israel, by the constant adherence of the tribe of Benjamin to the tribe of Judah when all the other ten tribes deserted it. How fitly does the book of Hebrews say that our Lord, Jesus, sprang out of Judah. He was a uh, physically of the tribe of Judah. For like his father, his great-great-great-great-grandfather in the flesh, he not only made intercession for transgressors, he became a payment for their debt. So that was, I thought that was a pretty cool quote. Okay, let's finish what we're seeing here. So the reason this story is really important is ultimately not just because of Joseph's great character, and that alone is great, but because we're seeing how God's working in time in the 19th century B.C. to set things up so that on April 3rd, 33 A.D., Christ could die for our sins. We are blessed, man. We are so blessed to be 75 years this side of D-Day. Can you imagine? Uh, one thing I remember doing when, at the University of Houston, this is before uh, microfish was commonly used in libraries, but you could go to their their library, and one whole floor had bound copies of major periodicals. And for somebody put the thought in my mind, if you want to understand World War II, read Time and Newsweek in December of 1941. What happened on December 7th? Pearl Harbor. Read about Pearl, read about World War II, not in the history books that are reflecting back on it, but the people living it in January of 1942. I mean, America was scared spitless. They thought we were going to be invaded by the Japanese and maybe by even the Germans eventually. I mean, they were scared spitless, and it's an amazing thing. And you read that and say, I'm so happy I know who won World War II. I ask uh, uh, some of my older relatives, what, what was World War II like? And they kind of said, it's scary. We didn't know if we were going to win or not, you know? And you can read uh, until, and actually, you know, by midway, it was pretty obvious the Japanese weren't going to invade us anytime soon. But, uh, so that actually didn't take very long, less than a year. But boom, in the early days, you can read those things. And it's amazing. I mean, there were no atheists. There are no atheists in foxholes. I mean, you read some of these articles in Time and Newsweek, and it's like, apart from the intervention of God, you know, they're saying stuff like that in the popular media, because, you know, when you need his help, nobody's uh, hesitant, you know, not going to sue you for referring to stuff like that. But we're so blessed to be on this side of the World War II dynamic, although we've got our own challenges, don't we, And as our culture goes down the drain. But we're so blessed to be on the New Testament side of this. And, you know, the Lord's Supper, I think, is all about emphasizing, okay, you're living on the New Testament side of the equation, and so do this as often as you do it uh, in remembrance of him until he comes back. So we have this incredible, Homer Cox is living in this incredible little time bubble of a couple of thousand years in which we can look back at the first coming of Christ as we look forward to the second coming of Christ, right? And so don't take that for granted, nor the fact that we're not saved by believing in promises about a Savior, we're saved by believing in the provided Savior, right? And I like acronyms, God's offer of salvation providing eternal life to those who believe because Christ died for our sins, the great-great-great-great-grandson of Judah, in exactly God's timing, we don't have to die in our sins, okay? 
So let's look at the joy of reconciliation in 15 verses. We're only going to go part of the way through this chapter tonight today because I really want to emphasize something else at the end, the difference between horizontal forgiveness and horizontal rec- reconciliation and reunion. But we're going to see the joy of reconciliation here. And look at verse 1. Then Joseph, after hearing Judas plea, just make me the slave, let Benjamin go back, let the rest of the guys go back. Then Benjamin could not control himself before all those who stood by him. Everybody, they passed the test, A++. And he cried, he cried out, have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. So he gets rid of all the staff, it's just Joseph and his brothers, and look what comes here. And he, this is Joseph, and these are tears of joy. I almost forgot to give you that quote there from uh, Judah. Now, therefore, let me be your servant. Let Benjamin go. But he's weeping tears of joy. He's weeping so loudly, the Egyptians in a different room hear it. So it just so happens we got a photograph of that. No, it's not a photograph. It's an attempt. And these guys are wondering, what is he doing? <laughs> you know, They still think he's going to whack them. They don't know he's their brother. But they, they look mildly concerned there. But when he, when we get to verse 5, you can't believe their first reaction here. I guess you've read the story before, right? But uh, there's no man, none of his employers are with him. And he wept so loudly the Egyptians heard it in the other room. And the household of the Pharaoh eventually hear about it. And that's pretty cool. Let's just jump forward. Look at verse 16 of the same chapter. After he fully reveals himself and they interact with, the, with him a little bit. Look at what verse 16 says. Now when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, and Joseph was actually from Canaan, and he was Jewish, and he's been this great prime minister now, and they sold him into slavery, but they're all getting together again. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. So you've got human virtue there, even in unbelievers. Uh, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me, come to Egypt right after the famine here with us and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you can eat the fat of the land. Go back to chapter 45, first couple of verses there. Ouch, hurt my foot there. Um, look at verse 3. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Ani Yosef. First time he spoke in Hebrew. They didn't know he spoke Hebrew. He's been understanding all their interaction. He's been working with translator. He says, I am Joseph. And this is an attempt to show the initial reaction. Uh, can you see a little bit of concern here? Shock, disbelief. Like, I mean, uh, I'm not, they're just saying, what did he say? He's speaking Hebrew? Joseph? Joseph who? And this is 22 years later. Now Joseph's been waiting 22 years for this, Julie. These guys have no idea he's even alive. And now this Egyptian is claiming to be their brother? Is it possible? And if it is, what's he going to do to us now? Because we tried to kill him 22 years before. I love that. I need Yosef. The first thing he asks is what? Is my father really alive? You haven't been kidding me about that, right? But his brothers could not answer, for they were dismayed as his presence. Uh, you know, I can remember... Uh, hearing about 9-11 and then seeing, uh, you know, basically almost in real time seeing the second plane hit the, the tower, uh, you couldn't, I couldn't get anything out. It just kind of blew my categories. When I first heard that a plane had hit the first tower, I said, man, that is a really bad student pilot, and what's he doing flying over Manhattan, you know? I just assumed it was an accident. 
When the second one hit, it's obvious it's intentional. And who are they going to hit next? And apparently they wanted to hit either the Capitol or the White House, but the brave passengers there brought the plane down in Pennsylvania. They did hit the Pentagon, as you know. And uh, But I, I know what it's like. I know some of you can't believe this, to be speechless. It doesn't happen very often, as my wife would tell you, but they're speechless here. And so I think there's uh, a... Uh, brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Now, this is a this is like a picture I take at, on mission trips and on tours of Israel. People always complain because I take the back of their heads, but I'm focusing on like the Western Wall, and you just happen to get in the shot when that happens. I'm not because I'm showing your worst side; it's just I'm looking at the big picture here. But that's the back of Joseph in that picture. Actually, it's an artist reconstruction. But I think he looks like this. He's not vengeful, he's not spiteful, he's not bitter. He's been hoping and praying this would be possible at some point. And this, he's delighted this is about to happen. He says it not with uh, with anger, but with joy. But they're still thinking, what's he going to do now? Then Joseph said to his brothers, verse 4, please come closer. I mean, look, it really is me, okay? And he's got, it's got to be funny in a way. I would love to see that. And I think maybe we can go back in time at some point and see that during the millennium, but I'll see. And they came closer. They're going to do whatever he says. If he says jump, the only thing they're going to ask is how high, right? My knee kind of went out on me during the worship time. I guess it was during that, the walk around and get hugged apart. So that means I'm going to get combat pay here. I'll be next on the uh, knee replacement list here, the way I'm going. Um Old age isn't for sissies, I'll tell you that. Um, and he said, and he repeats himself, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Okay? You know that part of the story. Now watch. He's going to really stress God's sovereign control over this, too, in the same statement. But he's not denying their human responsibility and their true guilt. Right? You sold me into slavery into Egypt. You thought they were going to work me to death. Verse 5. But don't be grieved. Or angry with yourselves. I'm not grieved. I'm not angry. Because you sold me here. For, and that word for for is uh, key in Hebrew. It means because. And the because of God's providence is the key to handling the good, bad, and the ugly. Without failing the prosperity or the adversity tests, really. The bottom line is, you did it, and that, you're culpable for that, and it was a horrible thing. But God sent me through that before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. Remember, he interprets the dream, seven years good, seven years bad. We're in the second of the seven bad years, so we're nine years after that. He's 39 years old, 22 years after he's sold into slavery. God sent me here to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land now these two years, and there are still five years in which there is going to be neither plowing nor harvesting. But God and his sovereign providence sent me here before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth. That's the word Eretz, which refers to the land of Israel in most cases here. And he's thinking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob's savior promises. You, this group has to survive this famine because this is going to be the human lifeboat through which the Messiah is going to come, right? Um, and he says, and to keep you alive, that's you brothers, uh, the basis of the nation of Israel by great deliverance. Verse 8. Now therefore, it was not just you that sent me here. You did it. And you did it for wrong reasons. And it wasn't a good thing. But God ultimately 
You know, God's sovereignty trumps all of our decisions, you know, and it all works according to his program. And he's made me a father. That's kind of a figure of speech, meaning a trusted advisor, someone who's influential and respectful. He's not really his physical father, nor is he claiming to be there. To Pharaoh and the Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Wow, I love that. Let's talk about the relationship between uh, God's sovereignty and good and evil, okay? Um, if you say that God is the cause of everything, uh, skeptics will say, well, that means God's the cause of evil. Well, yeah, uh, God is the cause of everything that happened just in the same way that Ford Motor Company is the cause of all the wrecks and all the family vacations and all the good things and the bad things that happen with Ford Motor Vehicles. They're the ultimate cause. If they don't build that vehicle, you're not going to have a Ford to take you on a family vacation or, unfortunately, have a car wreck or whatever happens, right? They're the ultimate cause, but they're not the blamable cause. Same kind of thing, I believe, in the way God relates to good and evil. And what does James say? God, James says, every good gift, every perfect gift comes from God. So quit focusing on human vessels and elevating them too much and focus on God for all the good stuff in your life. But when you sin, don't you blame God for that? I'm paraphrasing James 1. That's essentially what he says, isn't it? God ha- does not have a symmetrical moral relationship with the good he decrees and he permits and has uh, included in the program. That He doesn't have the same moral relationship with good that he has with evil. Okay? God's the ultimate cause, source of everything, good, bad, and ugly, but he's not the blamable cause for evil. Sin and sinners are, ultimately, metaphysically and personally, but God ultimately gets the praise for everything that's good. So, you know, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Of course, we uh, celebrate Blanche's talents and Janice's talents on the keyboards, and we're thankful for uh, Michael and Amanda and Krista and everybody who's been involved in Super Summer over the years leading that. But ultimately, it's God doing that, right? So ultimately, we praise God for that kind of thing. So notice, I think this is a good passage where you have both human responsibility clearly affirmed and God's sovereign providence affirmed at the same time. It's a little bit like the Trinity. Do we believe in one God or three gods? We believe in one God who exists in three persons. And they're both true at the same time, even though I can't literally think how that works. It's just bigger than I'm ability to think. Is God sovereign? Are we responsible? I think the Bible teaches both. And here Joseph's affirming that. You sold me into Egypt. Don't be grieved about it because even though you sold me and it was a horrible thing, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have hated me like that. You shouldn't want to kill me. But God was overriding your decisions, so it worked out to, for greater good. God sent me here to preserve life, in fact, your life, and ultimately to bring this remnant that will be the seed plant uh, for the coming of Jesus Christ. So rather than denying one or the other, it seems to me like the Bible affirms both. Now notice uh, verse 9, Joseph commissions his brother to get dad and bring him back to bring him to Canaan, uh, bring him to Egypt so they can be together and have their reunion. Hurry now and go up to my father, because he's old, so you know, you never know. You gotta get him. Joseph been waiting 22 years for this, not sure it happened. And say to him, thus says your son Joseph. Now make sure dad's sitting down. Make sure dad's sitting down. When you tell him Joseph the prime minister, because I mean, you guys believe it now, but it's still hard to believe it. In fact, it's hard for me to believe it, he's probably saying to him. But uh, go get Dad, like, real quick, and say, your son Joseph 
thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. You know, he realizes there's nothing in him that's done this. God has used him and put him in that position. So come down to me. Don't delay. I mean, you're getting older, Dad. you got to get down here quick, you know. Plus, we got five years more to ride out the famine. You shall live in the land of Goshen. What's that? That was providential because that's like the richest place as far as the soil and stuff in all of Egypt. So they're going to go from uh, up there in the upper right, which is where ultimately the Messiah is going to do his thing, right? And where ultimately the center of God's purposes are. But for a season, until the iniquity of the Canaanites can bubble up, you know, we're going to have them in, in Egypt, right? So real places, real people, real events. He says, uh, you, shall, you live in the land of Goshen, which is that section in Egypt. You shall be near me, you and your children and your grandchildren, and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. So the whole family is going to join uh, Joseph and they're going to be reunited in Egypt. There I also provide for you, that's all y'all in the Hebrew, for there will be, there's still five more years of famine to come, and you and your household and all that you have will be impoverished. So we see these are real places, and he's already got a plan in, in mind because he's been hoping the brothers would pass the test. He's not making this up on the fly. He's always, he's always had a plan. Verse 12, behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, now this, he's talking to the ten big boys again, the ten big brothers that sold him into slavery. Your eyes see, verse 12, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin. So there are two categories. They're the guys that were involved in the dirty deed, and then the little brother that was probably the object of their contempt, or which would have been if they were still in the place spirits that they were 22 years before. Um, that is my mouth. I'm really Joseph speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all the splendor here in Egypt and all that you've seen. You must hurry and bring my father down here. Sooner the better. And then the last couple of verses, and we'll finish with our text today, but I want to talk about something else. Joseph and his brothers rejoice in their reconciliation reunion. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. I just can't believe it's happening. Benjamin, even Joseph, is blowing his mind. And he kissed all his brothers on the cheek and wept on them. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. And I said, well, obviously they're going to talk. They didn't have Netflix, right? That's, this is really important. And little things in the text, I know I focus on little things. And you go, why is he going to those little things? Because a lot of times they're important. Look at chapter 37, the very beginning, 22 years before this. Look at verse 4. We read this. Actually, look at verse 3 of chapter 37. Now Israel, also known as Jacob, loved Joseph more than his son, other sons. That's describing what's happening, not prescribing you should do that. You really shouldn't show favoritism, but Israel did, and it was important in the story. So Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than the other sons. It's describing, not prescribing it, because he was the son of his old age. He gave him that very colored, multicolored jacket. And his brothers saw that their father loved him, Joseph, more than them, all the other brothers. And so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. That's where the story starts. 22 years later, we read, you know, at the end of that reconciliation phase one, that, uh, tell my father, uh, get my father down here. Uh, he hugs him. He kisses him. They make up. And afterward, his brothers talk with him. Like, we can't believe this, man. We're so sorry. <laughs> uh, whatever they said would have been great. But I think that's pretty cool. Now, the story goes on, but I'm going to stop there. 
because I want to talk about, uh, say a word about God's reconciliation and forgiveness, and then talk about, and let's call that vertical, and then I want to talk about horizontal forgiveness and reconciliation. But uh, grace-giving, not grudge-holding, for sure, in Joseph's mind and heart, is the catalyst for this happy ending of phase one of the story. The story continues from this point. But I think the ultimate example, clearly, of that kind of grace is God the Father as the architect of the plan, God the Son as the active agent, and God the Holy Spirit as the activating agent. Convicts us of sin and judgment, uh, sin, righteousness, and judgment, opens our heart to believe, draws us to see and believe. But uh, in theological forgiveness, we've got the blotting out of our legal guilt or moral debt to God based on his grace and the work of Christ received by faith in Christ alone. In theological reconciliation, we've got God changing his relationship with the world from enmity to peace, savability, and then to individuals Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And Homer read the passage that uh, most clearly talks about that kind of vertical reconciliation. In Christ we're whole new creatures, and this goes back to the work of God, verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 5, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of living and sharing that word about reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world himself, not counting the trespasses against them and just putting us all out of business. But he's committed to us now the word of reconciliation. Therefore, Dustin is an ambassador. Kyleen is an ambassador. Janice Skinner is an ambassador for Christ. And Paul says, it's as though God was making an appeal through us, which is so absurd that he would use any of us as his spokesman, but he does. Uh, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's Rather than seeing how angry we are at the degradation of the culture, people ought to see how sad it is, how sad we are that we've got to go through all this, and you've you made some, some, something so much better than all this nonsense we're living in now. For he made him, God the Father made Christ, who knew no sin to be a sin offering on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that's ultimately the theological, I think, analogy you're seeing here. But I want to talk about horizontal forgiveness and reconciliation. And uh, I'm not going to read this whole article to you, but I've given it to you. I, I found a really good article on this personal or horizontal me forgiving people and me being reconciled to people and you forgiving people and you reconciled to other people. That is a really great article by a guy who pastors a Bible church in Millersville, Pennsylvania. They named it after Ron Miller. That's something else you won't know because he won't tell you. He's too modest that they named the whole city after him. Uh, but this is, I don't know this guy, but I'd like to meet him. Steve Cornell wrote an article. It appears on the Gospel Coalition website. And let me uh, read some highlights and then we'll close. He talks about horizontal forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. Forgiveness is very different from reconciliation. It's possible, in fact, Jesus tells us we're supposed to. We're supposed to. It's possible to forgive someone without offering immediate reconciliation. Sometimes it's impossible to reconcile. It's possible forgiveness to occur in the context of one's relationship with God apart from contact with her offender or his offender. He put the feminine pronoun there. But reconciliation is focused on restoring broken relationships and where trust has been broken, restoration is a process, sometimes a lengthy one. 
because I've been forgiven so much, I can and should forgive others when they slight me or sin against me. But whether or not we can reconcile is a whole different issue. It depends on a lot of things which I touch on here. And just seeing those aren't the same thing can free you up from a lot of false guilt and a lot of fakiness, too, in your Christian life. Differing from forgiveness, reconciliation is often conditioned on the attitude and actions of the offender. Sometimes you can't reconcile because they won't let it happen. While its aim is restoration of a broken relationship, those who commit significant and repeated offenses, uh, sometimes kids grow up and despise their parents and and, and affects spit in their face and refuse to reconcile and it breaks mom's heart and it breaks dad's heart and the parent Christian parents forgive them but they can never reconcile because the kid won't let it happen the kid's now 40 years old this thing these kind of things happen uh, I thought about Andrew a lot this week thinking about this because most of you know this but Andrew's grandfather and his pastor were shot and killed by a guy 20 years ago or a long time ago horrible uh, reconciliation means, because when you return, you go back to something. Reconciliation means going back to a relationship that's been messed up for whatever reasons and fixing it. We never had a relationship with that guy. And I'm going to tell you that when you forgive other people, forgive means giving the burden of judgment to God. So I give up revenge, bitterness, Character assassination, let me tell you what Steve did to me this time, Ron. Let me tell you about that jerk. I give all that up when I forgive. But when you've got, and you give it to God. Now guess, what does God say about criminal offenses like murder when you give it to him? Let's review some things. Go to Romans 13. The idea that we can personally, because we've been forgiven so much, put even a murderer against the background of the cross, and personally forgive them in the sense that we're giving the retribulation, the judgment to God, not to ourselves. We're just giving that up. We're not going to ruin our lives by hating anybody. That's one thing. But reconciliation may not be possible. And that forgiveness doesn't mean you don't press full charges. You know, I'm just warning you. You break into my uh, my uh, my car and steal my golf clubs, and I haven't played golf in like three years on a real golf course, but I keep thinking it's going to happen. You steal my golf clubs, I'm going to put you, I'm going to throw the book at you. Okay, I'll forgive you personally, but that's a felony, stealing my golf clubs. Just say, oh no. Um, there's a distinction there. And when we say we're going to give it to God, so if somebody murders our, our grandfather, we don't press charges? Of course you press charges. You kidding? When you give it to God, this kind of thing happens. Look at what happens. Romans 13. Every person is to be in subjection to the government authorities. Now, of course, in Paul's day, he lived in the Roman Empire, which was governed by born-again Christians. In fact, I think they were all Calvinists, you know. So, of course, Nero, of course, was a clear supralapsarian, I think, last time I checked. Now, he was a Greek pagan, Greek-Roman pagan. Every person's, because any kind of basic human government is better than anarchy, uh, you always submit to human authority until unless it's a direct sin to do that, right? Every person, in general, is to be in subjection to government authorities. And he's talking about the Romans, not the Christians. Um, there's no authority like that except from God, God's providence, and those who exist, those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists human authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they have opposed that will receive condemnation, the sin. 
For rulers are not supposed to be a cause for fear for good behavior. Now, some rulers are a cause for that. That's illegitimate, and that's when you continue doing the Bible studies and doing what you do. But for evil, do you want want to have no fear of authority as a general rule? Just obey the laws, and you'll be fine. And and there are exceptions, but in general, that's true. For human government is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, if you break the law, you rape, steal, and kill, be afraid. Human government should arrest you and make you pay your, your price for it. Does not bear the sword. That's the sword for capital punishment for nothing. For it's a minister of God, an avenger. I, I found that very freeing, you know? Because, you know, before, uh, uh, I thought about Andrew's plight, I thought about Steve, his dad's, Andrew's dad. Andrew's, Steve's dad was murdered along with the pastor, uh, shot and killed. Um, uh, I won't go into more detail because it's horrific just to think about it. But the idea that we're supposed to forgive means that we can't press charges. Heck no. We give it to God. God set up the government. This guy did this thing. Of course we're going to press charges. And every time they want to release this guy, uh, you do, we send our letters and say, please don't do this. Okay? Uh, well, you must really hate him. No, we don't hate him. We don't hate his person. We hate what he did, but we don't want a relationship with that person at this point. You might say, occasionally you hear somebody does, does that. God may give you the grace to do that. He hadn't given me enough grace to do that, and so I doubt he's done that for Steve or Andrew. But there's a difference there. You don't have to be driven by hatred. You've got to give that up to God. Let that person be in God's hands. Maybe pray for their salvation, right? But anyway, differing from forgiveness, reconciliation is often conditioned on the attitude and actions of the offender, while its aim is restoration of a broken relationship, reconciliation. Those who commit significant and repeated offenses must be willing to recognize reconciliation is a process. It's not a point act. If they're genuinely repentant, the person, the, the kid that ruined his mother's life because he rejected her and abused her and stole her money and he just sells drugs for a living and that kind of stuff, they will recognize and accept that the harm they've caused takes time to heal. I, We can often say, I forgive you, but it will take some time for me to regain trust and restore our relationship. The evidence of genuine forgiveness is personal freedom from a vindictive or vengeful response. That's what we're supposed to give to others, but not necessarily a restoration of fellowship or relationship. Timing of reconciliation, the process of reconciliation, talking about Horizontal between people depends on the attitude of the offender, the depth of the betrayal, and the pattern of offense. When an offended party works toward reconciliation, the first and most important step is the confirmation of genuine repentance on the part of the offender. An unrepentant offender will resent your desire to confirm the genuineness of his confession and repentance. The offender will try to manipulate you. I've had people do this to me with lines like, well, I guess you can't find it in yourself to be forgiving, or some Christian you are, some pastor you are. I thought Christians believed in love and compassion. We do. (laughs) Uh, Don't be manipulated into avoiding the step of confirming the authenticity of your offender's confession and repentance. Right? Uh, Now watch this, Doug. I didn't put this in, but this is uh, for you. It's advisable in difficult cases to seek the help of a wise counselor. Doug is a good Christian counselor. One who understands the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. It's difficult to genuinely restore a broken relationship when the offender is unclear 
about his confession and repentance. We should strive to be as certain as we can of our offender's repentance, especially in cases involving repeated offenses or in criminal behavior, right? So it's not we're justifying all that nonsense. Of course, only God can read hearts, but we must evaluate others' actions. We must not allow superficial appearances of repentance to control our responses. Then the author article gives seven signs that indicate the offender is genuinely repentant, which frees you up not just to have forgiven them, but to try to restore the relationship. Number one, they accept responsibility for his or her actions instead of saying, well, yeah, I did that, but you're a lousy pastor or whatever they say to you. Uh, I mean, you hear stuff like that. Uh, since you think I've done something wrong, or if you think if I've done something to offend you, I guess I'll say I'm sorry. That doesn't sound like they've understood what's going on. Um, person welcomes accountability from others, does not continue in the hurtful behavior or anything associated with it, does not have a defensive attitude about being wrong. These brothers uh, have committed, confessed their sins a couple times among themselves about selling Joseph down the river, as we saw in previous chapters. They don't dismiss or downplay the hurtful behavior or the hurt they've caused the other person. They don't resent doubts about their sincerity. They realize they need to demonstrate their sincerity. And they make restitution when necessary, when it involves physical or financial things. That's ten signs that offender is genuinely repentant, and so you can legitimately try to restore the relationship, but it's still going to take some time depending on the depth and the issues involved. Ten guidelines for those hesitant to reconcile. Those who have been seriously and repeatedly but hurt rightfully may feel hesitant about reconciling, and I get that, with their offenders. When your offender is genuinely repentant, however, it's important to be open to the possibility of restoration unless there's clear issue of safety involved. You got some guy that beats up his wife and has beat up his other previous wives and now he, you know, begs your forgiveness on the third, fifth, or eighteenth time. You better be real careful about that because certain people get in that pattern and apart from the grace of God, they don't ever get out of it. So be careful there. Uh, when your offender is genuinely repentant, it's important to be open to the possibility. And then, so he lists ten things. Be honest about your motives. Make sure your desires to do what pleases God and not to get revenge. If you're looking for revenge, you haven't really forgiven yet. And forgiveness and reconciliation are related but different. Settle the matter of forgiveness as Joseph did in Genesis in the context of your relationship with God. I'm convinced that Joseph had forgiven his brothers probably 21 and a half years before this, if not before that. But reconciliation wasn't possible until 22 years after the events. Be humble in your attitude. Don't let your pride, you're the one who's been offended, whose uh, spouse has had an affair, whose son has treated you spitefully and horribly for decades. Don't let your pride ruin everything. Renounce all vengeful attitudes toward your offender. That goes back to the forgiveness. We are not to demand that a person earn our forgiveness. Okay, That's something we give because of the grace of God. It's been given to us. Be prayerful about the one who hurt you. This is really an important principle. Jesus taught his disciples to pray for those who mistreat them. It's amazing how our attitude toward others can change when we pray for them. Not just send lightning bolts on their head, Lord. You know, Pray for strength to follow through with reconciliation. Be willing to admit ways you've contributed to the problem. Even though you did not start the dispute, it's possible your lack of understanding, careless words, impatience, or failure to respond in a perfectly loving manner, and probably never do that anyway, may have aggravated the situation. When this happens, it's easy to behave as though the other person's sins more than cancel yours, which leads you with a self-righteous attitude that can retard forgiveness, you think? 
Best way to overcome this tendency is to prayerfully examine your role in the ongoing conflict. Write down everything you may have done or failed to do that is a factor. Uh, such a step does not suggest equal blame in all situations. Okay, Be honest with the offender. If you need time to absorb the reality or to consider even reconciliation, just be honest with them about it. Be objective about your hesitancy. Sometimes you have good reasons for being hesitant. But they should be objectively stated. Sometimes, for example, repeated confessions and offenses of the same nature make it understandably hard for you to trust and to rebuild the relationship. Be clear about the guidelines for restoration. Establish clear guidelines. Requirements like restitution can be clearly understood and include such factors as maintaining financial accountability, holding down a job, or seeking treatment for substance abuse. I mean... Everybody hits that wall and they think they're done and then they beg you to forgive them and you get more money and they blow it on booze or drugs again. You gotta, you don't want to enable that. And so that's a tricky call, but you need a lot of wisdom there. But don't let them manipulate you in doing the wrong thing. Be alert to Satan's schemes. In Ephesians 4, we read, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away. That is, forgive other people. Don't do all that stuff to them. Let God mediate the judgment. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you, uh, just as Christ has loved you, give, and he gave himself up for us. Be mindful of God's control. And this is the big key in Joseph's situation. We know that God works all things together for good. Does that say we know that all things are good? No, it doesn't say that. It doesn't teach that. We know that God works all things together for good, those who love them or call according to his purpose, when you're having a hard time being restored to someone, take time to note how God may be using that offense for good in you. Is this an unusual opportunity to glorify God? How can you serve others and help them grow in their faith? What sins and weaknesses of yours are being exposed in this whole dynamic? What character qualities are you being challenged to exercise? You can see a lot of yourself and those weaknesses become more visible and God's all about your character, not just your circumstances. And finally, be realistic about the process. Change often requires time and hard work. Periodic failure by an offender who sincerely has repented and really wants to work at it, but he doesn't act perfectly every time during the process of full reconciliation, doesn't always indicate an unrepentant heart. A key factor of change is the attitude of the offender. While you may proceed with some caution, be careful about demanding guarantees from a person or perfect sinless perfection from a person who's expressed true repentance. If they stumble, the process of loving confrontation, just pointed out to them, confession and forgiveness may need to be repeated. Setbacks and disappointments are often part of the process of change. Don't give up too easily on the process of reconciliation. Be open to the goal of fully restored relationship. But I'll tell you, the, I'll close in prayer now. But the greatest example I can remember in recent American history of somebody forgiving but unable to reconcile is that uh, Wednesday night prayer group in South Carolina a couple of years ago, and I should have had the exact uh, date and the names and stuff, but I don't. But you may remember that. It happened to be a black church on a Wednesday night. I think the pastor and a small group of people circled up now to him praying. And some white guy, doesn't matter what colors they are, but this happened to be a white guy who hated black people, which is a terrible thing. It's also true the other way. It's bad. But walks in there, pretends to participate in the meeting, and then shoots a bunch of them, kills them. And it was so amazing to see 
and I didn't try to find this, but I just watching probably Fox News or whatever, they interviewed several church members in the immediate aftermath of that, and they were so gracious and so kind, and they were, their spirits were crushed by sometimes their relatives or their dear friends being murdered in their church, but they had no hatred for the guy, but they prosecuted him to the force of the law, which they should. And you don't reconcile with somebody you never had a relationship with at all, you know? You might end up with a relationship with them in superlative circumstances, but that's not on you. That's not on you. Forgiving is on you. Reconciliation is based on a lot of factors you don't necessarily control. Does that does that take a little false guilt away, folks, when you realize, of course we've forgiven him or her or them, but uh, and I'd love to reconcile, but it's just not possible because they don't see what they did or they refuse to uh, repent or they refuse to take uh, responsibility for it. Or uh, it just is, uh, just for whatever reasons, it can't happen. On the other hand, never give up on anybody. Because God's in the miracle-working business, and sometimes and it's a wonderful thing when it happens when you're able to see somebody who's done something really slimy and really horrible not only be convicted of that, come to salvation or come back into fellowship, and then really want to rebuild a relationship with you, even if it's via email or stuff like that. It's a beautiful thing. I've seen it happen. But the one thing about being a pastor in a small town for 30 years is without meaning to, you accumulate a certain number of enemies. <laughs> and I hate nobody. I had, no, you know, I've got my faults, okay? But I hate, I'm not really a hateful person. But some people, you go to Walmart and they treat you like you got bubonic plague. And you're saying, golly, yeah, they really, they really, really don't even like me at all. You know, and I really, what they thought I did, I didn't even do. But they don't want to talk about it. So, we're supposed to forgive because we've been forgiven. Sometimes God blesses us with their union. In this part of Genesis, we're seeing one of the greatest examples of reconciliation reunion ever in human history. But Joseph, and they all look back and said, man, that was an amazing journey we were on. We wouldn't want to do it again. But God really blessed us that they, uh, they were able to reconnect. So it can't happen. So don't give up hope, but don't beat yourself up with a bunch of false guilt if somebody you love and you've tried to serve and you've has have hurt you deeply and you've forgiven them in your heart and you've put them over in God's hands, if they don't want to reconcile, may not happen. This side of heaven, if at all, right? But uh, that, that's what it is. It's tough truth, right? But uh, let's pray, Father. Give us the wisdom and the grace to not to hold grudges and to be full of bitterness and spitefulness and wanting to character assassinate everybody who's slighted us or done something we don't like or something that has hurt us, but also help us to realize sometimes we can't reconcile with people. I know they tell uh, folks dealing with uh, uh, substance abuse issues and uh, uh, addiction issues, in order to get past that, they're going to need new playgrounds and new playthings and new playmates. And if people reconcile with the wrong people, uh, they always go downhill, it seems like it. And so quite often we have people in our sphere that are involved in some of that stuff, and we want to see them pulled out of it, but we can't do that. We just put them in your hands and ask that in your purposes and your grace you might draw them to yourself. But help us not to be uh, slow to forgive, but help us not to feel false guilt because we can't always reconcile. I pray you'd help us to keep the bridge open on our side always, but to be very wise about whether or not a particular person, especially someone who has done some egregious, horrific act against us or other people, 
are, are truly uh, deserving of reconciliation. It involves real character change. And that's certainly what J- Joseph had to dis- dis- determine from his brothers. He was not going to reconcile with them um, in a positive way unless they were really different people. And they were, and you do that. And so we trust you with those kind of things. So help this to be very therapeutic for all of us and very practical for us as we apply this. In Christ's name we pray, amen.